0: Hi, this is Pastor Dan, and welcome to message number two in our four week series, Emotions God's Emotions, Our Emotions, and What We Can Learn from Them. I'm actually having to read this because this is like our fourth take. Last week, I talked about the Old Testament and the motion of anger. How many episodes in the Old Testament we see God getting angry. But then in the New Testament, when God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, all of a sudden there's a lot less angry God. But there still are some episodes, and the one that we focused on last week was Jesus flipping the tables in the temple. It's a rare but very very enlightening look at what makes God's heart beat with anger. And today, week number two, we're doing, this, we're doing the emotion called compassion, and I've picked an episode That's world famous, super well known, but anger adjacent in my terms, because it's got a little bit of the indignation that we would see, that we saw last week in Jesus, but it also has the love of God that makes compassion so real. So, take a look and see if you recognize this particular story.
1: Have you ever made a mistake? I'm not talking about a small mistake, but a big one. One so terrible that you can't even look someone in the face and tell them what you did. I could see the rocks in their hands, their fists raised high in the air. I had sinned and I got caught And the punishment for the sin that I committed, death. The religious leaders, or the Pharisees, brought me before the crowd. These men know everything about God's law. Or at least, they think they do. I was terrified. I couldn't even look up. I just knew any second the first rock would be thrown and that would be it. Then I heard the Pharisees ask Jesus if I deserved to die. I had heard about Jesus. Heard that he healed the sick and made blind men see. But Jesus said nothing. I just saw him bend down and write something in the sand. But the Pharisees still kept demanding an answer. My heart was pounding in my chest. I thought, this is it. He's going to end up agreeing with them and I am going to die. But Jesus just kept writing in the sand. But then, spoke. He said, let any of you who have never sinned throw the first stone. Did I hear that correctly? Did Jesus just defend me? Me, of all people. I thought I heard the crowd walking away, but I was too afraid to look up. Then he spoke to me. Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, neither do I, he said. Go and sin no more.
0: So here's my question. What do you think Jesus was writing in the dirt? I want you, if you have an idea, or just guess something wild, put it in the chat box. Now, I'm pre-recording this, so I can't see it while it happens, but... Um, I'm gonna get a download printout of all the chat box stuff. So you write it, I'll see it, and you'll see one another's. So put that in the box now and we'll get started with the sermon. Over the last several decades, studies have shown that the the American psyche has changed. A, A lot of things, are, are increasing and decreasing relative to how we used to be, the America we used to be. In fact, over the last 30 years, there's been a sharp increase and in, in consistent increase in mental illness, a decrease in compassion, and a really disturbing increase in narcissism. Now in layman's terms, and, and you're all familiar with these I think, but but mental illness, physiological, emotional. Um, chemical, all these things inside of us that contribute to us feeling, and I say us because I've, I've been on medication for, for a lot of things, anxiety, depression. I mean, it belongs to all of us. It's the feeling of being overwhelmed by life and overwhelmed by the limits that we face in our life, right? A decrease in compassion is about our unwillingness to be concerned about other people who are getting overwhelmed by their life and their limits. And then narcissism, that's almost like a pathological lack of concern for anyone else's life or limits. And it's this decrease in compassion that I believe attention and obedience and faithfulness to Jesus Christ can allow the church to be part of changing. How many of you have gotten a vaccine your vaccine shot or first or second or only one depending on which if you had your vaccine yet for covid would you just press a heart button i mean for a couple of reasons number one because it could save your life number two because it's a compassionate thing to do for the community around you you know even even real young healthy people first of all they're not invulnerable but second of all it's a way to show love to the people that are more vulnerable than you so i trust if you're a christ follower you're getting your vaccine I got mine, Laura got hers. In fact, each of us had some side effects afterwards, after our second shot in particular. I was probably real sleepy and tired and my arm hurt for about a day. Laura was knocked out cold, or this morning actually. She couldn't even go to work, she felt so bad, and she never misses work. There are side effects to things like vaccines. And you know, sometimes there's side effects to sermons as well. Pastor Chris and I, any competent preacher, we know how to deliver a sermon that's side effect free. Right? We can take a difficult passage of scripture and kind of overlook the hard parts, scrub the awkward parts, explain away the demanding parts, and we can leave you with a little tidbit of information and a little bit of goose of inspiration. And all of a sudden, you're like, that felt good. But a sermon that points a little bit more directly at some of our brokenness, that challenges us a little bit more uncomfortably, that sort of sermon, that could have side effects. And I want to warn you, this sermon is one of those. Today, I'm going to be taking a look at the parable, or the parable, the story that you just saw of Jesus encountering the woman who was taken in adultery. It's kind of the old school word. And we're going to be going through this step by step. So here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to get your Bible out or a notepad out because this is an exegetical sermon where we look at the scripture and we're going to pick it out almost verse by verse. And there's going to be parts in there that might have some side effects in your heart, in your life and hopefully in the community around you. Let's get ready. We begin with John chapter eight, verse one. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple and a crowd soon gathered and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery and they put her in front of the crowd stop. We're going to look at a couple things here. In front of the crowd. Have you ever been in in class or in a a press conference or at a protest or um, on a Facebook page and people put out questions there but their questions aren't really designed to get an answer as much as provoke a response right? That happens all the time, right? We, we see people asking questions in order to, to trap somebody or the, those gotcha moments that the press love, or, or just to create a, a, create a ripple effect. This is what was happening. They didn't really care what Jesus thought, but they were doing whatever they could to trap him. And the scripture says this in just a second. A questioner who doesn't seek an increase in wisdom, but rather is looking for an increase in outrage or opportunity, those are very dangerous people. And people with wisdom, Christians, ought to be prepared to respond to that. And Christ, our leader, was. So this is a great episode of how you handle people who are out to get you and they don't mind if they get somebody else in the process. So in front of the crowd, they didn't really care about the answer. They wanted the reaction of a crowd. And then the phrase, they put her. What's missing there? Chris and I preached on this thing before. Where's the guy? Right? Most times you're caught in the act of adultery. It takes two people. And there's not a word said about the dude. What I see here is that the the scribes and the Pharisees are willing to tell the truth about half the story. They're willing to show this woman got caught In adultery, not a word about the man. And I think this this pattern of people provoking us with half-truths is something we've all experienced. If you can tell half the truth, you leave out the rest of the context, you leave out relevant facts, you can really get a rise out of people, especially gullible people, or especially people who are predisposed to being angry anyway. And the emotion of compassion as we see it in God we can't live a life that's full of that gift of compassion if we're pre primed to be angry and if we're not willing to look for the whole truth. Jesus faced half truthers all the time. But I do want to say so, so compassion is not opposed to, to hard questions. Compassion doesn't mean it's opposed to law and order. In fact, A lot of time, wise people know that it's law and order that creates the conditions for compassion. And in fact, compassion, compassionate hearts, create law and order. Because there's less to be anxious about. There's less to be vengeful and frustrated about. They go together. But compassion also has to critically examine and question what law and order says. And that's what Jesus does here. So let's keep reading, verse four. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. So I asked you before, what do you think he wrote in the dust? What was the purpose there? I think what he was doing was he needed time to gather his thoughts. And you'd be like, Dan, Dan, he's God. He didn't need time to gather his thoughts. I beg to differ. Or if he didn't, he was demonstrating that it's okay to take some time to gather your thoughts. He knelt down and he fiddled in the dirt. And I think he was was thinking about, how am I going to answer the accusers? And two verses later, he gets down and doodles in the dirt again. And at that point, I'm wondering, he's probably thinking, now what am I going to say to the woman? To be compassionate, you need to give yourself time to think. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Compassion needs time to think. But the question that I asked you, what do you think you wrote in the dirt? Of course, there's no way of knowing. And if you think you know, you're probably suffering from the heresy called Gnosticism, which means you have a secret knowledge that the rest of us don't. So I'm not going to pretend that I have some revelation from the Lord and here it is. But I've always, not always, I recently, when I was praying about this more a couple years ago, I came to wonder if what Jesus was doodling in the dirt was a circle. I wonder if he was drawing a circle. And not maybe like a Venn diagram, like, okay, good scribes, bad scribes, things like that. Or maybe a football play, like, okay, she's the X in the middle, I'm the O next door, and I'll, like, roll to the left when the rocks start flying. I mean, it's not like a not like a football diagram. What I think it is 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 this graphical metaphor for the fact that, There's an irony here. The woman was was in the middle of a circle. And yet, at the same time, she was the outsider to the circle. She was the one that was on trial. But she was on trial specifically because she didn't belong to them. She wasn't one of the good people. She wasn't one of the the, the ones that followed all the rules and, and didn't flirt with the wrong person's husband. She was a sinner. And nobody in the circle was. So I think it was this fascinating thing. It reminds me that, it reminds me of the scapegoating thing that we see all through the Bible, right? That that people who are trying to hold on to power, they want to scapegoat people that are on the outside looking in, because then a couple things happen. Then, number one, if I can point to your sins outside or her sins right down there in the dirt, I don't have to have people or myself think about my sins. And the corollary benefit is if we're all mad about her, you don't have the energy to be mad about me and how I'm manipulating the system and, and kind of profiting off of your backs as the poor and lowly people who are following the rules. So Jesus, I think, was gathering his thoughts. And scripture says, verse 7, they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up and said, he stood up again and said, All right, here's the answer. All of you who are without sin, you cast the first stones. And you know what happens then? That's the pivot point. The one without sin, you throw the first stone. When Jesus said that, whoever's without sin, throw the first stone, he knew that there were no perfect people there, but he also knew that she was a sinner too. Of course she's a sinner, he's not blind. Nobody there's blind. It was almost as if he's saying, I know what the Bible says, all right? But that was written for then. I'm with you now. That's not to say that what was written then isn't still true. It's just that what was written then looks different in the light of now that I am here. In other words, the law is still important. The law still guides our lives and gives us correction so we can straighten out our lives. It gives us a mirror so we can see our own brokenness and weakness and and failings but it doesn't stop by looking at us. It reflects up toward God and it points us to God, not just his, his law, but it points us to his grace. It's almost like Jesus, remember when Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead? He's saying, let the sins be sins, but let me be the life. So he's saying shame on you to the crowd, not shame on her. He's saying to the crowd, you guys have been shown grace. You know what it's like to live as children of Abraham. Why don't you show the same grace to her that God has shown to you and our ancestors time and time again? So then it says, verse eight, he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. And when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. So I love this phrase, beginning with the oldest. In your world today, in our culture today, how many of us would unequivocally say, it's a good thing we have so many wise old people? Star it, or heart it, if that is actually what you think. I'll tell you, as somebody who's in the upper half of life and uh, represents a generation of old people or getting older people, I'm embarrassed. What lots of people my age think, say, and do, and what they refuse to think, say, and do, if, if we are the only examples that the people younger than us have to follow, the world's in trouble. The oldest people drop their rocks first. And there's a reason that John writes that down. There's a reason he says that. Because after all of their, their bad tempers, their gullibility about what should we should worry about, who's sleeping with who, all the, all the poor role modeling that they were doing, like, ah, there's a woman who's in trouble, let's kill her. Right After all of that bad behavior, the older people in this circle, the scribes and the Pharisees that had authority and good-looking and clothes and, ouch, I hurt myself, and drove cars that were, that were higher-end, they, they were humble enough, they were humbled enough to repent. And whether they wanted to or not, they dropped the stones, and then they became the role models. Friends, if you're my age or older and you're not acting like a role model, shame on you. Not shame on the sinner that we've pointed at. Shame on you. Shame on me. Right? The job of old people is to be elders, to be good role models. And when the elders had left, and Jesus is left in, in the crowds in the distance, but these aren't like the authority crowds, these are the curious people. These are the people who might have been afraid to say anything with the really religious people around. Jesus stands up and he says, and we don't know how loud, it was loud enough that she could hear, but not loud enough that he was condemning her. He said he gave her a challenge. He didn't want, he didn't want the law and order goons to hear this and give them more ammunition, but he wanted her to hear it. He said it to her and he said, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? And she says, no, Lord. And then Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. I can't tell you the number of law and order Christians that have said to me, okay, look, I agree in showing compassion. We all ought to do it, right? But we got to love the sinner and hate the sin. And even Jesus said, after he saved the woman, Jesus said, go and sin no more. But I'm like, yeah, he did. But he didn't say it while the grumpy church people were still there. He said it to her. It was, giving them, it was giving her a gift of reframing her life. It was giving her the gift of seeing clearly that she was responsible in large measure for her bad situation. You see, Jesus sided with the poor. He sided with the distressed and the oppressed. But he didn't hold them guiltless. He knew that they had to clean up their act. He knew that we all have to clean up our act. It wasn't just the self-righteous jerks that he said were sinners. It was the the vulnerable. It was the the people who needed him the most that he spoke to difficult words as well. So go and sin no more. Jesus didn't tip it. Tip his hat to the lady and then ride off into the sunset, right? He wasn't like this, this silent, strong hero that fixed a situation that rescued someone needed rescuing and then wasn't going to be seen, heard from again. He wasn't just, he wasn't just a, a hero. He was a, he was a partner. I like to say he wasn't a strong, silent savior, but he was a grace-filled, get-down-in-the-dust grace-giver. Just because someone deserves our compassion doesn't mean that they're not partially responsible for getting better themselves. And that's what Jesus was trying to say. He wasn't hating her sin. He was loving her and trusting her that she could change her life. So what he did was he viewed her as a person, a broken person, yeah, but an eternally valuable child of God who he was going to love enough to die for in just a little while to lay down on a cross and take the nails for, and she may or may not get it, but he was going to die for her anyway. So i love to ask the question, who gets the compassion in this story? Uh, I mean, number one, the woman, obviously, right? The woman gets compassion. He saved her life. And he also then gives her a chance at an abundant life in the future, a, a life that, that leaves some of the bad decision-making, the, the inevitability in her mind about her choices, it leaves those in the, in the dust. She has her life saved, both literally and figuratively. But I wonder if we could also say the men with the rocks had their life saved too, right? Because they came this close to having a perfectly legal, justified excuse to kill a person. To, to, to throw stones until her, until her skull got broken. They had an excuse to live out their most violent, cruel fantasies and not be in trouble for it. In the armed forces, that's called moral injury. You, you have to do something or you're pressured to do something that's not illegal but will leave you crippled, that will leave you emotionally stunted and longing for healing the rest of your life. That's why war is so dangerous, not because of, of the, physical and, and the physical cost, but the moral cost as well. He saved those men from doing something that they would be in bondage to forever. He saved their lives. And he also saved the life of the whole community. He saved the lives of the people who looked up to those elders who were so ready to throw the rocks. He saved the lives of of the the middle-aged men who looked at those older men as the wise ones who were going to set the pace, who were going to be the disciple-makers to them and their children. And he saved the lives of all the children who would see, who would watch their fathers and mothers witness how sin got paid for. Jesus came to save not just the the accused, but the accuser. Not just the the sinners, but the saints. And he came to save them all in the community that they shared together. Remember what it says in John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then 17, God God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. You see, compassion isn't just about the occasional nice things. It's not the money that I give to the, to the people who stand at the corner of state line and 435 when I'm trying to turn left and, you know, go somewhere, right? It's not just the occasional money that I give. It's not the smile that I give to the mentally, mentally ill homeless man in the public washroom who looks really confused and really looks like not a lot of people are nice to him. Right? It's not that. It's not even the more active things we do like stopping to change the tire along K10 when there are those those two women who were late for work and didn't speak English and and you pull over and you change their tire because that's what you do. It's not about the time you give to a coworker cuz you know he's struggling with his teenage son. It's not just about bringing the 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 kids or your roommates to, well, to pack meals on May 1st at this uh, giant meal packing party that we're having. It's not even about, well, this is a little bit of an ad, it's not even about going with Pastor Dan and Drew to the Mexican-American border for the high school mission trip and adult mission trip, which you'll see in the chat box, um, a sign up for, we'd love to have you. Compassion is also about the boldness to work up the courage to show when you decide to live a life that's worthy of your calling. It's about telling a customer who tells you a mean-spirited joke, you know, I love you, George, but that's not funny. It's about stopping the gossip at a PTA meeting or at your poker party. The gossip about a neighbor and say, you know what? I've only had good experiences with them. I don't know what you guys are talking about. It's about saying, I've only seen good in their hearts, and you know what? If they have a problem, maybe it's our job to offer them some help. Or maybe in the case of a stone throwing mob, compassion means you have the courage to intervene. To intervene when the crowd wants to use their, their family values to justify doing something hateful. It takes the courage to, compassion's the courage to intervene when there's, there's bad theology be, being thrown around by stone throwers who are using Bible quotes to validate their vocal protests. How do we get strong enough? And how do we grow up to be people who are, who are bold enough to be compassionate? So i got a couple of how-tos here. And it, not swearing these are not like God's revelation to me, but, but I've been praying about this for a long time because I've seen how less and less compassion I see in the public sphere, that I see on the roads, that I see in the schoolyards. Number one, I would say, question authority Question authority. Don't just question the people who might deserve your compassion. Question the the systems and, and the arrangement of life that got them in this position. Chances are they're somewhat responsible for their predicament, but so are the things that never get questioned or asked. Question authority. And how do you do that wisely? Well, you learn stuff. Number two, learn stuff, right? Read real news. Right? Whether it's the more liberal New York Times or the more conservative Wall Street Journal, whether it's you know websites or blo- po- uh, blogs or podcasts, BBC and, and DW, Deutsche Welle, both of those are in English. They give you a little foreign exposure to American stories. Get your perspective stretched so that you learn something. Read fiction. Okay, I got to confess, I don't read much, but I remember the stories that I have read they give you the ability to see life through somebody else's eyes. It trains your brain to imagine it's not all about what happens to you. So, so yeah, read real news, read fiction, read scripture, for Pete's sake, and travel. Get a sense that the world you live in isn't the only part of God's world there is, and your world is not the only part of the world that God loves. And that you might have something to learn if you travel a little bit more broadly. Once again, trip to the Mexican-American border with Drew and Dan. Take a look in the chat box. Most importantly, humble yourself. Humble yourself in private. Let the news and the art and the scripture convict you of your blind spots and point your heart to places that are hurting spots where you could go to serve. But the most important and the hardest to do is get some R&R. I don't mean rest and relaxation. I mean... Repent and role model. Repent and role model in public. Let people know when you change your mind, when your position changes. Let them know it has and why. Invite people to come alongside you while you put your beliefs into action. Or another way to put it is act like a grown up. And I don't mean to be facetious, because that, that word's been tossed around a lot the last couple years like, we need some grown ups in the government, things like that. But, but act like someone who has experienced the process of growing, who used to only be this smart or this aware, but now is this smart and this aware, who's, who's in it not to bless yourself, but to bear fruit for the world. Act like a grown-up. You know, I want to close with a story from... Uh, from New York. It's the, it's a story about mayor uh, Fiello LaGuardia, LaGuardia, like the airport, right? And you, you may have heard this story in sermons that I know that I've given before. When I talk about the metaphor of of God being the judge who knows that we're need that we guilty and for his righteousness to be fulfilled, we need to pay the penalty of our sins. We can't do it, but Jesus does. So the judge gets off the bench and he walks around and pays our, pays our, our fee, our fine, and then we're, we're let off. Like that's a metaphor for God's grace. Interestingly, that metaphor comes from, at least according to Snopes.com, the kind of the, the myth checker, it could well come from a story about Fiorella LaGuardia, in the 1930s and 40s. So he was the mayor of New York and the mayoral charter in New York allows the mayor to sit behind the bench in police court. So to kind of judge misdemeanors and things like that. So there's a story that he's back there in, in, uh, in police court and one night he's, he probably enjoyed it, right? Wearing a robe and pounding a gavel, he was a big, bigger-than-life kind of character. So this guy comes in, uh, brought brought by the cops, that he had been he had stolen a loaf of bread, right? So he uh, they read the crime against him. He confesses to having done it, and then he says, "Well, they got no choice. Uh, law doesn't make exceptions. So I'm going to sentence you to a fine of ten dollars, which was what the ordinance required." And he gabbled he gabbled the case court or the case shut. And then he reaches in his pocket, pulls out the 10 bucks, takes off his hat, puts it in the hat, passes it to the court stenographer, and he said, You're guilty, but the fine's paid. And then he looks at the bailiff and he said, But the rest of you folks, he said, I hereby fine everybody in this room 50 cents apiece for daring to live in a city that's so messed up that a guy's got to steal a loaf of bread in order to keep his family fed. Bailiff, collect the money. (laughs) And the story goes, the bailiff collected the money, and this man that had had left a convicted misdemeanor, this guy who had left as a convicted thief, had his fine paid by the mayor and walked out with $47.50, or in today's dollars, $850, $900 bucks. That kind of joy, that kind of compassion that's not just about loving somebody and thinking about them and putting ourselves in their shoes, but getting gosh darn angry that the world around us is so messed up, imperfect, and unfair that we have to have compassion for them in the first place. And to know that the world is so messed up and gosh darn unfair that our Lord Jesus had compassion on us. So the big idea today is that we've been loved so much by Jesus that we gotta love greatly in Jesus' name. And as we, we look around us and we see people who aren't being loved well, they're not treated fairly, they're not welcomed, blessed, or respected, they're not forgiven or reconciled, then it's up to us who follow Jesus to act like Jesus. That, prairie is how we change lives. That's how we show God's compassion That's Jesus's love. Watch this last part of the clip and pray with me that we might have more of God's emotion in our emotion and change lives with Jesus's love. Amen.
1: Jesus stepped up and defended me, me. And when I looked into his eyes, all I could see was love. Instead of feeling ashamed, I felt loved, I felt free, and the only one who could have ever done that is Jesus. And He can do the same for you. Oh, how He loves you. No matter what you've done, Jesus' love can cover all your sin and shame. I know, because His love did it for me.